Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we talked about the first Swedish crusade in Finland, a legendary campaign. Literally. There's basically no hard evidence that it ever took place, as described in the sources chronicling the lives and deaths of the two men leading the whole affair, King Eric and Bishop Henrik, both of whom were elevated to sainthood after their premature and gruesome deaths. Henrik was axed to death by an irate farmer called Lalli on the ice of Lake Gölönjärvi, and Eric had his head chopped off on the behest of a guy who thought he should be king instead of Eric. Today, we'll take a closer look at the second and third Swedish crusades in Finland. On the one hand, they contain far fewer enraged farmers, magic mitres, saints and miraculous wells. But on the other, we can be quite certain that they actually took place. This is the story of when Finland became part of Sweden, and it's a story that can be backed up with more reliable sources accepted by the contemporary scholarly community. Episode 42, Swedish Finland. First of all, it's worth pointing out that when the Swedish crusaders turned up on the eastern shores of the Gulf of Botnia, they didn't invade a state called Finland. There were people there, for sure, called Finns, with a distinct culture and language, and they lived in organized communities, but they didn't have a unified political entity called Finland, or anything else that the Swedes conquered. In a way, Finland as a political concept was created through the Swedish conquest. Through these Swedish crusades, the land we call Finland was incorporated into Scandinavia, first politically and religiously, then financially, socially and culturally. Today, we'll focus on the second and third Swedish crusades in Finland. But as I mentioned repeatedly last time, there are few reliable surviving sources describing the first Swedish crusade. In fact, There's really nothing to back up any claim of Swedish political control in Finland before the 13th century, so roughly half a century after the saintly Bishop Henrik is supposed to have been saving Finnish souls. So calling the second and third Swedish crusades second and third is really a bit of a misnomer. But I'm going to do so anyway, because that's what everyone else is doing, and it seems unnecessarily confusing and pedantic to start changing these names after centuries of established usage. Just imagine me saying the so-called every time I mention these two later crusades, okay? Anyway, what we do have in terms of sources is a papal bull from the 1170s, so roughly 20 years after Eric's and Henrik's exploits, that implies that the Swedes had been campaigning in Finland to Christianize the population. The bull also mentions that when the invaders showed up, the Finns would typically accept Christianity and ask the Swedes to send priests and teachers. But as soon as the troops went home again, the Finns would revert to their old pagan ways. Almost as if their conversion under the threat of death wasn't sincere. Fancy that. Even though the bull doesn't mention any details or names, it does seem to indicate that there were early Swedish incursions into Finland attempting to spread Christianity, and quite possibly political influence, east of the Gulf of Botnia. In fact, we have reason to believe that Christianity was fairly widespread in Finland even before the Swedes decided to start their crusades. That would perhaps lead more cynically inclined people to assume that the crusades were little more than wars of conquest, and whether it was the intention or not, that certainly turned out to be the outcome. 
There's also papal correspondence referring to Knut Eriksson, that is Saint Eric's son, and his repeated campaigns against the heathens. It would only make sense that this refers to activity in Finland. Similarly, Saint Eric's grandson, of course also called Eric, is granted the right to pagan lands, conquered by his ancestors in a letter from the Pope in 1216. So at this point, Swedish kings were clearly claiming the right to rule also east of the Gulf of Bothnia, and the church was okay with that. Still, this doesn't prove that Saint Eric and Saint Henrik went on a crusade together, only that a generation later, people in the Vatican were under the impression that they had done so. At this point, there was also a bishop in Nosiainen, who answered to the archbishop in Uppsala. Nosiainen, as I'm sure you remember from last time, was the place where Saint Henrik is supposed to have been buried initially. Even though both the saintly bones and the seat of the bishop would soon be moved to Turku, Nosiainen remained an important site for pilgrimage in medieval Finland, and the town's coat of arms still depicts Bishop Henrik sitting with his feet on the farmer Lalli, looking angry and holding an axe. Even though the second Swedish crusade in Finland definitely did happen, we're still not sure exactly when that was. It was sometime in the middle of the 13th century, so roughly a hundred years after Saints Eric and Henrik, and that is probably exact enough, at least for the purposes of this podcast. The Swedes had been trying to extend their political control across the Archipelago Sea, where the Åland Archipelago connects Sweden and Finland through a network of hundreds, if not thousands, of islands. At this time, Finland proper was already under Swedish influence. Remember that it was far easier to travel over water than through dense forests back then, so it was perhaps natural to expect the Swedish kings to expand east rather than south or west. Further inland, though, the going was a little tougher. We have papal correspondence from the 1230s bemoaning the fact that the Finns were so slow in embracing Christianity, and in 1237 there was even a rebellion in Tavastia, where the locals destroyed a church and reverted to their pre-Christian religion. The exact details of what happened and what caused the Finns to rebel against the Swedes are lost in time, but we do know that some pretty violent and probably inflated accounts of events found their way to Rome because Pope Gregory IX was incensed by what he heard. He wrote to the Archbishop of Uppsala, relating how he'd heard that the Tavastians were sacrificing Christians to demons, burning them alive and poking out the eyes of priests. The Pope went on to urge the Swedish authorities to set out on a crusade against the Finnish apostates, and promised the crusaders the same deal that you'd get if you'd go on a crusade to the Holy Land. Forgiveness of sins, and a place in paradise if you'd fall in battle. The Swedes were only all too happy to oblige, and this is how the Second Swedish Crusade in Finland started. As I mentioned before, we don't know for sure though how long it took the Swedes to get going. Our main source for this crusade, the so-called Eric Chronicle, hardly a flawless font of objective knowledge about the period, claims that it took place between 1247 and the death of Eric the Lisbon Lame in 1250. The Chronicle explains that the Crusades ended when the king died because the man who led the crusade, a powerful Jarl named Berger, wanted to succeed as king and had to hurry home for the election. But he was too late. Instead, his son Valdemar was declared king. We'll talk more about Berger and Valdemar in a future episode when we return to the domestic developments in Sweden. For now though, let's stay in Tavastia and the insurrection there. 
it's probably worthwhile mentioning that this and other similar rebellions may have had less to do with opposing Christianity and more to do with displeasure at increasing Swedish control over Finland, or perhaps a combination of both. Sometimes the issue was the type of Christianity the Swedes were offering. Many of the Finnish rebels weren't pagan at all, but rather orthodox Christians, who had converted through contacts with the Novgorod Republic, a Slavic state that had developed out of Gordoriki in modern-day Russia, centered on the city of Novgorod, or Holmgord as the Vikings had called it. So to a certain extent, this was a proxy war between Catholicism and Orthodoxy, the two branches of Christianity that had split in the Great Schism of 1054. Now these Orthodox Christians were forcibly baptized by Catholic priests, winning the people and their land for Sweden and for Rome. When the crusade was over, the Swedes built a castle to secure the control over Tavastia. Revealingly, the Eric Chronicle stresses that the castle was constructed more as a part of the defense against the Russians than the Finns, and even though the Chronicle was written at a time when the Swedish-Russian relations were at a low point, it should still be noted that the spread of Christianity among pagans probably wasn't the only reason for the crusade to begin with. Following the Second Crusade, Finland, or at least Finland proper and Tavastia, were considered parts of Sweden, and it was governed from the city of Turku, easily accessed from Sweden across the Archipelago Sea. In cooperation with the Swedish crown, the Catholic Church also asserted its control not only over the souls of the Finns, but also over Finland itself. The bishops in Finland, who of course were Swedes, controlled the secular administration as well as the ecclesiastical one for about a generation, until the Duchy of Finland was established in the 1280s. The third and last Swedish crusade in Finland occurred in the late 13th century, in 1293, and was directed against Karelia, further east. The Eric Chronicle insists that the reason for this crusade was pagan incursions across the border, but it's much more likely that the opponents were Orthodox Christians, not that that would be much better from the point of view of 14th century Swedish chronicler, I guess. The second half of the 13th century saw fighting between Sweden and the Novgorod Republic, and the Third Crusade should be seen in the context of that conflict. The Swedes had trouble securing the eastern border, and troops from Novgorod had been pillaging deep into Tavastia in 1292. So the following year, King Valdemar of Sweden asked Pope Alexander IV to declare yet another crusade against the pagans to the east. The Pope agreed, of course, why wouldn't he? I mean, it's not like he had anything to lose. By the way, it was during this, the Third Swedish Crusade, that the legend of Saint Henrik is first mentioned, and Saints Eric and Henrik are called upon to assist with the crusade in Karelia. The 1293 attack by the Swedes seems to have caught Novgorod off guard. The Swedes managed to capture nearly all of the northern shores of the Gulf of Finland, and they established a castle in Viborg. But that wasn't the end of the fighting though. The Swedes pushed forward all the way to Lake Ladoga, where they built yet another castle, but they were eventually driven back by the Russians and had to give it up. The fighting between Sweden and Novgorod didn't end there though. It continued for another 30 years or so. In the year 1300, the Swedes took to the offensive once again, trying to conquer Ingria on the southeastern shore of the Gulf of Finland, just west of where the city of St. Petersburg is situated today. The offensive was successful, and the Swedes managed to establish a fortress here as well, despite Russian attempts to capture it. When winter was approaching, the lion's share of the Swedish army went home, leaving only a smaller garrison to man the fortress. 
but the Eric Chronicle relates that the food stored in the fortress went bad that winter and many of the soldiers were afflicted by scurvy. This meant that when the Russians renewed their attacks in 1301, they managed to expel the Swedes and raise the fortress to the ground. The fighting continued for several years, but neither side was able to push the other one back permanently. Despite repeated attempts, Sweden couldn't establish a foothold on Lake Ladoga or shut the Russians out of the Gulf of Finland. But they did manage to hold on to Viborg, and it would remain the easternmost outpost of the Kingdom of Sweden for over 400 years. In 1323, Sweden and Novgorod signed the Treaty of Nöteborg, which formally defined Sweden's eastern border for the first time. The treaty split Karelia in two, one Swedish and one Russian part. Further north, the border was far less well defined, and Swedes and Russians would take widely different views on where the border was. But that didn't really matter at the time, since the vast, uncharted land north of Karelia was sparsely populated, and neither Sweden nor Novgorod had any control over these lands anyway. By the time the Treaty of Nöteborg was signed, Finland was definitely part of the Kingdom of Sweden. The Finnish bishops were answerable to the Archbishop of Uppsala, and the Bishop of Turku was a member of the Swedish Privy Council. When the Swedish nobility was given its special legal status and tax exemption already in 1280, the ordinance included Finland as well. Furthermore, as you may remember, Sweden was still an electoral kingdom in the Middle Ages, and in 1362, Finland also started to send representatives to the elections that were held outside of Uppsala. It should be noted, though, that the senior clerics and noblemen governing Finland at this time were all Swedes. The King of Sweden appointed the commanders of the three castles in Turku, Tavastia and Viborg, and he made sure that they were placed in Swedish hands. These three castles were crucial to Swedish control over Finland, both from a military and administrative perspective, and important towns developed around them. Before the Swedes arrived, there hadn't really been any urban culture in Finland, and so the population of these towns tended to be largely Swedish, or German, since German merchants dominated much of the foreign trade through the Hanseatic League, which we'll talk more about in another episode. Both Turku and Viborg had significant German populations, something they had in common with most Scandinavian cities with foreign trade at this time. At the same time, even though we see a migration of Swedes to Finland, the Finnish rural population largely retained its distinct Finnish identity and their own language. The Swedish speakers would typically settle in the southwestern corner of Finland, closest to Sweden, and the further inland and east you'd go, the fewer Swedes you'd run into. Slightly later, the previously sparsely populated east coast of the Gulf of Bothnia would be settled largely by Swedes. That was a process that was mirrored by the similar settlement of the west coast as well, so Sweden as a country grew northward on both sides of the Gulf of Bothnia, more or less simultaneously. So that's how Finland became a part of the Kingdom of Sweden. Military campaigns, sometimes against the Finns and sometimes against Russians from Novgorod, expanded Sweden's border all the way to Viborg. These campaigns were, sometimes after the fact, justified as holy wars against the enemies of the one true religion, whether they be non-Christians or orthodox Christians. But the story of a Swedish presence in Finland doesn't end or begin there. So 
Now let's rewind the tape and have a look at what archaeological evidence can tell us about how and when Swedes came to Finland. Archaeologists have concluded that Swedes, or rather people speaking Swedish as opposed to Finnish, had settled in what would become Finland already in the centuries preceding the Viking Age. Ruslagen, or the coastal area of Uppland, was the most important and first center of Swedish immigration to Finland. This shouldn't come as much of a surprise, since it's the part of Sweden that's closest to Finland. Ruslagen may also have given Sweden its Finnish name, Rotsi. At this time, large parts of Finland were still sparsely populated, at least by permanent settlers. Partly due to Finnish agrarian methods of slash and burn that we touched upon in a previous episode. The coastal areas were not so attractive for the slash and burn farmers, who preferred denser forests. But Swedes settled in these coastal areas, and they were happy to stay there and not venture deeper inland at this time. It would also seem that they didn't cut the ties with the motherland, and instead kept up connections, trade and social ones. So when times got tough in Finland, there was re-migration back to Sweden. In fact, these early Swedish settlers disappeared eventually, either due to hardships, such as Viking raids, leading to them abandoning the region and returning west, or through intermarriage with Finns. Even though they largely lived in separate areas, there is evidence for pre-Christian connections between Swedes and Finns, for instance in the Finnish language. Words borrowed from Swedish show that there was a political influence over early Finnish society through words such as kuningas, meaning king, valta, power, and tuomia, to judge, to name a few examples. People who are experts in these matters claim that through the form of the words in Finnish they can see that they were borrowed from Swedish before the Swedish conquest of Finland in the Middle Ages. But at the same time, there were limits to the cultural influence from the West. According to archaeological findings, Viking Age culture in Finland wasn't the same as in Scandinavia. Ceramics was not of the Scandinavian kind, and Viking Age artifacts like runestones are not to be found in Finland. One notable and debatable exception is the case of the Vero runes, but I'll talk about that in just a bit. Finnish culture and society were influenced by Scandinavia, but not yet identical to it. There was also influence from other sources, perhaps most notably from the Baltic region. So despite these early movements across the Archipelago Sea, serious Swedish settlement with staying power only seems to have happened in the Middle Ages, when there was a religious and political framework that created political, social, cultural and financial structures enabling the Swedes to stay Swedish in Finland. But once there was a self-consciously Swedish population in Finland, defining themselves as not Finnish, it didn't take long for them to start to explain how and why they had ended up there. There are several folk myths trying to explain Swedish migration to Finland. Their value as sources for historical knowledge is obviously limited, but since they say something about how the Swedes in Finland viewed themselves, it can be of interest to have a look at them. Many of the myths claim that Swedes moved to Finland because there wasn't enough food in Sweden. This echoes Greek myths explaining why Greeks in antiquity established colonies in Italy, France and other parts of the Western Mediterranean. I couldn't tell you if it's a conscious inspiration or a coincidence, but it is interesting. 
One of these myths describes how the Swedes gathered all of the old people who couldn't work anymore and explained to them that there wasn't enough food to feed them so they would either be killed or sent off to Finland. The elderly chose the latter option and that's how the Swedish settlement in Finland was established. Unfortunately, the myth does not explain how these elderly, who weren't strong enough to work at home, managed to establish a completely new society, or for that matter, how they reproduced. Another version of this myth claims that the undesirables, who were faced with the choice of death or deportation to Finland, weren't old, but criminals who the Swedes wanted to get rid of, basically making Finland Sweden's Australia. A similar myth claims that the Swedes in Finland originally came from the island of Gotland in the Baltic Sea. There was a shortage of food on the island, which led the king to decide to kill every third person. But the queen interceded and commuted the sentence to exile to Finland, or to Pargas, just south of Turku to be exact. The queen even filled one of her gloves with corn and sent it along with the exiles so they could plant them and grow crops when they reached their new home. The glove is actually a detail that appears in several of these legends. Doesn't make it true though, just a trope of folklore. The legends relate that when the Swedes arrived, the land was covered with deep dark forests, and it was completely uninhabited, unless you count the many dangerous animals and dragons who dwelled in the depth of the forest. To get rid of the dragons, the Swedes lit fires all over the place, and apparently it worked, because as far as I know, there are no dragons in Finland today. A popular myth that's a riff of the biblical story of Noah's three sons populating the earth after the flood talks about three men, Helsing, Sibbe and Borg, who arrived in the region named Nyland or Uusima in Finnish, meaning new land in both languages. The three men founded and named three parishes, Helsinge, Sibbo and Borgo, all in the Helsinki area today. This myth was important to the Swedes of Nyland and the regional coat of arms depicts a boat, symbolizing that the inhabitants arrived over the sea from Sweden and were not originally Finns. Another biblically inspired legend claimed that Magog, Noah's grandson, had settled in Finland. Later, his descendants moved to Sweden and became the Goths, who conquered a big chunk of Europe, including Finland again. In the 16th century, there were five large tapestries hanging in the royal palace in Stockholm, depicting the Magog leaving Finland and arriving in Sweden. In the 17th century, when Sweden stood at the height of its power, Swedish historians took for granted that Finland was the birthplace of the Swedish royal dynasty, and Swedes living there were descendants of the Goths who had stayed behind when their kinsmen left to conquer Europe. A scholarly, slightly less myth-based debate about when Swedes settled in Finland took off in the mid-19th century. It soon became political, since it was connected to the question of budding Finnish nationalism. At that point, spoiler alert, Finland was no longer a part of Sweden though, since it had been conquered by Russia in 1809. This was a long and heated debate that involved scholars in both Finland and Sweden, and in a nutshell it boiled down to the question of how legitimate, how authentic the Swedes as a people in Finland were. What rights should the Swedish minority have in Finland? The implicit assumption being, the longer roots, the more rights. There was much at stake, not only the future of the history of Finland, but also the standing of the traditional Swedish elite in the Russian Grand Duchy of Finland, and even in a possible future independent Finland. 
Predictably, Swedish nationalist historians try to convince everyone that there was a long and unbroken chain of Swedish settlement in Finland that could be traced back to ancient times, maybe not to Magog and his brood, but still to the Bronze or Iron Ages, maybe even to the Stone Age. Some even went as far as to insist that the Swedes had arrived in Finland way before the Finns had, who only showed up in the early 8th century. But that was such an extreme position that even some of the most patriotic Swedish scholars were skeptical. Against them, scholars who wanted to minimize the Swedish presence in Finland claimed that no serious Swedish immigration had taken place before the medieval period, and then only as a part of a project of conquest and colonization of a neighboring people. Finnish nationalist historians argued that any major Swedish immigration to areas that were heavily populated by Swedes in their day didn't happen before the 14th century. It's in this context that the runestones in Vöro should be seen. It's two runestones, basically the only runestones found in Finland. Scholars, politicians and intellectuals who argued for ancient Swedish roots in Finland were quick to embrace these stones as proof that they were right, whereas their opponents deemed that the stones were fakes, claiming that they must have been carved at the time that this debate was raging in a deliberate attempt to create fabricated Swedish roots in Finland. The stones were discovered in Vöro County, 50 kilometers east, more importantly inland, from Vasa in Ostrobothnia. The coastal area was settled by Swedes after the Third Swedish Crusade, relatively late in the Middle Ages, so runestones, indicating the presence of Swedes in the area as far back as the Viking Age, would be nothing short of a sensation. The runes on the stones are only partially legible, but the bits that we can read indicate that the stones would be memorials to sons who fell in battle abroad. For example, one reads, In memory of my son who died far in the east, Father Ale carved these runes. God help his soul. The text is fairly similar to that of runestones found in Sweden. There's also a cross carved into one of the stones, which is fairly common on runestones from the late Viking Age, when Christianity was gaining ground in Scandinavia. Still, almost no serious scholars believe these runestones to be authentic and from the Viking Age. There are just too many anomalies. Runestones are usually placed in open terrain for all to see. After all, that was the point of them. Why go through all that effort if no one could see the stone? These stones, on the other hand, were hidden deep in the forest. They imply that Scandinavians, speaking Old Norse, lived here, far from the coastline, deep in the Finnish forests, and that they were also Vikings, going east to Gordariki at least. There's no archaeological evidence found in this area to back that up. No remains of Viking Age settlement at all have been found there. Also, this area is very much off the path beaten by Vikings on their way to Gordariki or Miklagord or Serkland. And the stones are also just a little too convenient politically in affirming deep Swedish roots east of the Gulf of Botnia. In the 1980s, the Finnish Heritage Agency deemed that the stones found in Vöro were most likely modern fakes indeed probably carved in the 19th century. Anyway, based on archaeological and linguistic evidence, we can conclude that there was a Scandinavian population in Finland before the Viking Age, but that they disappeared, either moved or assimilated into the Finnish population. The Finns were aware of Scandinavian culture and influenced by it to a point, but they had a distinct material culture of their own. 
There are also signs that Finland is divided east-west, with more Swedish influence in the west and along the coastline. This is also reflected to this day, with the Swedish-speaking population in Finland still concentrated in the southwest. But despite cultural influences, there seems to have been no significant immigration across the water from Sweden in the Viking Age. For instance, there are no Swedish place names in Finland from pre-Christian times. The starting point of major Swedish immigration to Finland coincides with the establishment of Swedish rule in Finland, that is to say, in the late 12th century onward. Though the Finnish provinces were an integral part of the Kingdom of Sweden with the same legal rights and duties as the rest of the realm, Finnish-speaking Swedish subjects faced comparative challenges in dealing with the authorities, both because they didn't speak Swedish and because Swedish administrators tended to favor Swedes over Finns, for instance in arguments over fishing and land rights. As a part of Sweden, Finland became a part of the Western European Catholic Christian cultural sphere, and politically, culturally and economically also a part of Scandinavia, albeit not, strictly speaking, from a geographical point of view. Finland would remain the eastern half of Sweden for hundreds of years. In fact, Finland has been Swedish longer than Scania has, since the southern tip of modern-day Sweden was conquered from the Danes as late as in the second half of the 17th century. Next time, we'll turn our attention westward to another outlying territory that fell under direct control of one of the three Scandinavian kingdoms in the Middle Ages. We'll return to the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, where the Icelandic Commonwealth is going through a crisis. Meanwhile, the Norwegians have just gotten themselves out of their century-long civil war, and the King of Norway is hoping to exploit the political instability in Iceland to expand his own realm. But before I sign off today, I'd like to mention a comment that I've received from a listener called Anne. In episode 40, we talked about the Danish crusade in Estonia and the Battle of June 15th, 1219, where the Danish forces won thanks to the bishop holding up his arms. I mentioned that this mirrored the biblical story of how Moses had secured the Israelite victory against the Amalekites by doing the same thing. But, Anne points out, I failed to mention that the story of how the Danish flag fell from heaven as a voice called out, When this banner is raised, you shall be victorious, is an equally clear parallel to the story of the battle at the Milvian Bridge. Anne writes that it seems obvious that whoever made up the story of the Danibrog being delivered from heaven as a sign of victory was aware of the story of Constantine's vision at the Milvian Bridge. For those of you who might not be, the legend claims that on the eve of Constantine's battle against Maxentius in the year 312, at the Milvian Bridge just outside of Rome, Constantine saw an image of a cross in the sky and heard a voice that said, In this sign you shall conquer, but in Greek. He then ordered his men to paint crosses on their shields, won the battle and went on to become sole ruler of the Roman Empire and pave way for the triumph of Christianity. It does indeed seem that the two episodes are too similar to be a coincidence, especially considering that the chronicler had already incorporated another victory-inducing miracle in his narrative. So yes, you're right, Anne. The legend of how the Danes got their flag is most likely modelled on Constantine's vision at the Milvian Bridge. Nice catch. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? 
Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.